0: Back here in the house of the Lord one more week. I'm so grateful that, as I said last time, the Lord has called us to be joined together. Thankful that we um, can now allow people to gather. If they're not here, um, then we can allow them to gather um, through social media, which is what we have even today. So we're just grateful for all the mediums that God has given us. Nevertheless, it is time for us to preach the Word of God. It is the most important time of every Sunday, and I'm always ecstatic to be able to preach the word of God. Now, you know that we have been walking and working through the book of Acts, and we're continuing through that walk. And today we're going to look at what it means to be a Christian and what it looks like to be a counterfeit. What it means to be a Christian and what it looks like to be a counterfeit. Now, one of the most common questions and struggles that are happening within the church is determining if we are actually believers who have been converted or if we are, in fact, just counterfeits. Quite honestly, we have all in this room, if we are believers, we have all probably wondered this about ourselves, wondering whether or not we are Christians or if we are counterfeits now we know that we are not who we are on our worst day as christians we go through some days where it seems like we cannot escape the hand of sin it seems like sin is very present in our lives and so in those days we should be encouraged that we are not who we are on our worst day for sure and that's the grace of god but with that in mind we should also be reminded that we are not who we are on our best day either, we have all been able to string together some days that we feel the spiritual hiding of our of our spirituality and we feel like we're as close to God as we possibly can be. But no matter the day that we're having each day, we are at the mercy of God who, through his sovereign grace, saved us and is saving us from the presence of sin. Now, we previously saw in Acts, we previously saw in Acts a couple in Ananias and Sapphira, who, if you remember, Ananias and Sapphira came to the apostles and they had said that they had sold everything that they had and that this was the profit that they made from it and they lied to the Holy Spirit and they are struck dead. Now... You remember, as we looked, we don't know that there was actually a profession of faith that occurred through these two. Because the Bible never shows us that there is actually a profession, but it does show us that they are at least gathering with other believers and are bringing their their belongings and the earnings from those belongings. But we cannot say with surety that there was actually a profession of faith. But today. Today, we're going to look at a man who did, in fact, make a profession of faith. And we're going to assess that if this man who made this profession in Jesus Christ, though he makes some egregious missteps, we're going to analyze and look and see if we can determine whether or not this man was a Christian or a counterfeit. We're going to look at his response And see if his response was emblematic of a person who had truly been changed by Jesus Christ or someone who just repented because they were sad they got caught. So let us look in the word of God in Acts chapter eight, verse nine. And there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he was some he was somebody great. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given them, given through the laying on of the apostles hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither no part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of God, the word of the Lord they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many. Villages and of the Samaritans. Let's pray. Father God, it's another time for the word of God. We thank you for the word, Lord. As we dive today in the life of Simon and Magus, Lord, we pray that you will reveal to us not just the standing of, of his relationship with you, God, but that you will cause us to examine the standing of our relationship with you as well, God, that it will not be built on anything that's counterfeit, that it's not built on a facade, but that it is built on the truth a life that has been regenerated and that has turned to repentance and salvation. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Now, for a number of years and a number of years ago, I actually worked at the bank and I've worked at two banks. But when I first began working in the bank, I worked in Gardendale as a teller. Now, during that time, and anybody who knows this has ever been a teller, one thing you learn about being a teller is they teach you how to spot counterfeits. In fact, the most common counterfeit that we are called to spot is hundreds. The reason we are called to spot hundred dollar bills is because if we can't tell that hundreds are counterfeits, then it causes the greatest loss to the bank. So we are drilled as when we were in the banking industry, we were drilled on spotting counterfeits, but nothing more than hundred dollar bill counterfeits. Now, during this same time, there was a man in all of north central Alabama who was going around and he was handing out such real looking, genuine looking counterfeits that they were getting passed through all of the circulation of money. People were not noticing them. We were receiving them at the bank and marking them as we were told to do. And even when we marked them, we still couldn't tell that they were counterfeits. It was not until these bills were returned back to the Department of Treasury, back to the place that they had been received, that they had been made, that they had been created, that they were able to put them together with the real bills, measure them up and separate them from the real bills and mark them as counterfeits. It is not until they were returned to their maker that the maker could identify them as real or counterfeits. It reminds me of what Jesus says is going to happen because he says that in the Bible, there are many of us, even in the church today, who have grown up appearing to be wheat. but He says we've been tares the whole time. Now, we don't necessarily get the reference of the wheat and the tare, but just know wheat and tare look just alike, but they are not alike. And it is very difficult to tell them apart. But Jesus says that one day the wheat and the tare will be gathered together back with their maker. And even though the tares grew up with the wheat, they will be separated. I will tell you something interesting about those bills. Those bills cannot get back to the Department of Treasury and say, but we got passed through bank after bank, through retail store after retail store. They will not be able to say, but we deceived so many people. So many people thought that we were genuine. No. It does not matter how many people they're able to deceive. They were never real and they're separated and they're thrown away. As it is with us, when we stand before Jesus Christ in the last day, we will not be able to make the proclamation Well, I went to church every Sunday. I did all the things that Christians do. I said all the things that Christians say. I did everything that a Christian does. And there were lots of people. I was baptized. I said a prayer. I walked down an aisle. I preached in the pulpit. I sang in the choir. I played an instrument. I vacuumed the church. None of those things will be able to justify them. Because at the end... If you are, in fact, a counterfeit, God will know. And so, just like with those bills, they are unable to pass the final test. It doesn't matter if you can deceive people today. The question is, when we all stand before Jesus, will we pass the final test of our salvation? Now, We are looking at a man in our text today who is named Simon. Now, the Simon being referenced here is not Simon Peter, but it is Simon the magician. Now, we're noticing here in the travels of the apostles, while Luke does not say for sure that the city is Samaria, we can probably assume and grasp because they are speaking to a population of Samaritans that this is actually the city of Samaria that they are in. But one thing we do know from what Simon is telling us is that this city is at least fascinated with magic and with mysticism and with witchcraft. And not only that, but because uh, there was such a fascination in this city of magic and witchcraft, it was a lucrative business to be in. Simon had become so well known in the city that the people, the Bible says, are amazed by him. When we're introduced to him, the Bible says that these people are amazed by the things that he could do. And even Simon himself called himself somebody great. So when we see that Luke is flashing back here, Luke is speaking of a past time, he says, Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city. Now, Josephus, the secular Jewish historian, actually points out just what Simon they're talking about, and this is Simon Maggots. Now, He points this out and it is verifiable for us because if these are just made up stories in the Bible, then these people who are real people would have exclaimed boldly. I did not do that. That was not me. But this was a real man. The secular historian Josephus testifies of it and says that he was, in fact, a magician in the city. So we have Simon who says to himself and to those around him, I am somebody great. Now, the phrasing that he's using, the terminology that's being used here in the Greek is emphasizing not is he just somebody great, but he is somebody who has an external source of power, which is how he's able to perform these signs and these wonders and these acts of magic. And so he's convincing the people, though he's not, that he is divine. Not only is he convincing the people that he is divine, but he's also showing us that he has a strong hold on this city. Everyone would come to him in their desire to see him perform some great wonder some great sign, some great miracle, and we could assume the reason they would do that is because there was something that he could do for them, whether it was actually something happening or something that they had psychologically convinced themselves something was happening. He had convinced these people that he had a divine source of power. I do find it quite interesting that This fascination with mysticism, this fascination with divination has actually carried on into our time today where you have charlatans who are claiming to perform miracles, who are claiming to have an external source of power, and they claim that it's God and people run to them by the masses rather than rely on the truth of the word of God. Now, is Simon truly divine or not? No. No. Simon is not a magician. Simon does not have any power. Simon is not a mystic. Simon is a pretender. In fact, one of the clues into the life of Simon is not just that he is a pretender. He is an expert pretender. Even when he was a magician, he pretended to be able to do something that he wasn't able to do. It reminds me of when Moses stood before Pharaoh and as God allowed Moses to perform sign after sign, wonder after wonder, the magicians of Pharaoh pretended to replicate these signs and wonders. They didn't actually do it. But when he performed the final great miracles, signs and wonders, they couldn't replicate those because they could not measure up. So in the same way, Simon has no power. He is not a magician. He has no supernatural source. He is a pretender. But it does say that he is well respected in the city because they are following him because of his ability to perform magic. Now, this should remind us why people were so fascinated with Jesus as he's able to perform sign after sign, miracle after miracle, wonder after wonder. And many people came to him not because they wanted the man. They wanted the miracle. What does Jesus do? Jesus condemns any people that come to him. He says, you seek a sign. He didn't want people that were there for him for the miracle. He didn't want people who were there for the sign. but That's what they wanted. But then with Simon, his whole stranglehold, his whole plan, the foothold that he had in that city, it gets thwarted. It gets thwarted because of one man. And that man is going to be Philip. Now, we should recognize the name of Philip because Philip came when they appointed the seven leaders. Philip is one of the ones that they appointed. In fact, we can almost argue that the same effect that Stephen was getting ready to have on the cities, that's the effect that Philip is going to have as he is going through city after city, bringing these people the gospel. Now, when Philip arrived, the Bible says that the people who were following Simon They stopped following him and they began following Philip because not only had was he able to perform signs and miracles and wonders, but he brought them the freedom in the truth of the gospel. Now, in all of the people who are converted by the preaching, we cannot ignore that the Bible says that Luke writes that even and he puts the emphasis there, even Simon himself believed and was baptized and continued with Philip. So we see supposed regeneration, we see a baptism and we see supposed discipleship. Now, this is where we truly need to look and figure out if he was actually converted or if he was a counterfeit. So let's look at the nature of Simon's conversion here. Point number one for today. He may have seen Philip as a moneymaker. Simon may have seen Philip as a means to make money. Now to you, this may seem like a cynical approach. And you say, well, look, we don't know what his actual intentions were, but we have to know that the people who welcomed him into the church would have wondered the same thing about him. Listen, we remember when Paul is converted, through, though through more egregious circumstances, when he is converted, he had both Jews, Gentiles and Christians who all questioned whether or not he had actually been converted. They all questioned whether or not his salvation was legitimate. And Luke makes an interesting note here, and I think it is either to set us up for what is to come or to make a point about the standing of one Simon. What does he say? He says, and seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, let me show you something that's happening here with the language hint that he's using. The same word that is used for the amazement that the people had who were astonished by the magic that Simon was able to do, Luke says, is the same way Simon felt about Philip. He was feeling this amazement, this astonishment. And in the commentary that I read, it said, it's what you would feel about a rock star. It's what you would feel about a celebrity. That awe and that amazement is not that he knew that there was something genuine in it. But he knew that Philip had something that he wanted. Just like the people who followed him. He had something that they wanted. And so Simon is amazed at what Philip is able to do. Now, perhaps his amazement is that he thinks, well, Philip must have gone to the four-year University of Magic while I went the two-year community college route. Maybe he thought Philip was a real magician and, and he wasn't, but he is amazed that he can see that Philip is able to do things that he is not able to do. So if you're Simon, you think, This is the opportunity of a lifetime. I don't have any real magic. I don't have any real power, but this man does. This reminds me of the scribe when he comes to Jesus. Remember, scribes had authority that came only from the Old Testament, but it wasn't their own. And so when he sees Jesus, he says, this man teaches as one who has authority. And he tried to follow Jesus. But Jesus says, I don't think you understand what it means to follow me. To follow me means to give up everything, to give up your life. And he qualified what it meant to follow him. I think we see a trend here in the life of Simon. But you notice in this case that the people in the church, namely Philip and the others, they don't exact the gospel the way that Jesus does. And this should be a lesson for us as the church. What do they do? They welcome him in as an invited guest. They welcomed him in as a member of the church. But don't be deceived. They would test his motives. But I want you to think about it like this. We as Christians are not in the game of deciding whose conversion is real and whose conversion is fake. That job is reserved for God and God alone. We should always anticipate. We should always hope that anybody who claims that they have been converted, that that conversion is real. That should always be our hope. We should never be pessimistic about one person that comes to Christ, because if there is one person that Jesus cannot save, then there is no person that Jesus can save. So anytime anybody demonstrates and says that they are a Christian, we should welcome them. But we should also give them an opportunity to demonstrate whether or not that conversion is real. We should not just let them go and let them free and let them do and let them serve. But we should give them opportunities. We should disciple them. We should test them. But we have to let them in the fellowship. We are not the judges, people, of who is let in the church. And we are not the judges of who gets let out. But once they claim to be a part of the church, it is our God given responsibility to judge and assess their lives. Now, I'm not making that up. That comes out of 1 Corinthians five and twelve. This is Paul speaking. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That is the call. You read it in Scripture. We are absolutely called to assess the confession of people around us who name themselves as a brother or a sister. Now, the flaw, the mistake that many believers make is that the basis of that judgment is the life that they live. It is the things that they are sensitive to. But that is not how we assess one another. We assess one another on the basis of the way that we assess ourselves. And that is we judge our lives against the word of God. And in the same way, if anybody claims to be a brother or a sister in Christ, we judge that confession against the word of God. We must honor their profession, but we must also keep a watchful eye on them. Now, some people may think, well, this is a little too extreme, but we cannot have any outsiders who are inside because it gives them a false sense of security. So how do we know if someone is truly converted or not? Point number two, we must see how they live. We must see how they live. In this case, with Simon, we must see how he lives. Look at what happens after his conversion. As he is still following Philip, he comes along and Peter and John come down and they are with another group who had not yet had the Holy Spirit fall on them because they weren't present at Pentecost. Now, you remember, we had talked about this before. This is another sect of Jews who weren't present at Pentecost. So Peter comes to lay hands on them so that they will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, Simon sees Peter laying hands and he sees that something happens that he has never witnessed before. He sees men and women alike overcome by the power, the dunamis power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's look here with some insight on the condition of Simon and see if his heart is really where we could say that it was in right relationship with God. Now, what do we typically see when a miraculous act is performed? We typically see people, one, who are in great fear of it, but then immediately they say, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I have Holy Spirit? How can I have the indwelling of? holy spirit but that's not what simon says is it nope what does simon say simon doesn't say how can i be filled with the holy spirit simon says simon says simon says how can i have the power to give it to other people well wait a minute This is a man who is claiming to be regenerated. This is a man who is claiming to have repented, yet his actions reveal that his heart was just in it for the power. We would have understood if he said, what can I do to have the Holy Spirit like you just gave those people? But he says, I want the power that you just had. Now, this is a clue. This is a clue for us. He claims to have been redeemed. He claims to be regenerated, but his actions don't show that. Now, the thing that we have to wrestle with is this. How do we know that Simon wasn't just an immature believer? He had just been converted. Perhaps he didn't quite understand. Perhaps he didn't know enough. And we give space for new believers and new converts to make mistakes. That's why they're in the church for correction, for reproof for training in righteousness. That's why we're here. So how do we know that he wasn't just an immature believer? I think we have to look at Peter's response. Look at how Peter responds to him. He doesn't respond to him as a brother who is in error or one who is in the faith, who has gone astray. But he warns him that unless he repents, he will be condemned. Commentator J.B. Phillips put it like this and he characterized the rebuke of Peter this way to hell with you and your money. That is what Peter says. Now we know. Let's be clear. Who is repentance for repentance is for both the unbeliever and the believer, but for two totally different reasons. The believer does not repent in order to escape the judgment of God. We have already escaped the judgment of God. All of our sins have already been forgiven. But the believer repents because we have a devotion to God, a love for God to be like him and less like ourselves. So there is no selfish motivation for the believer that repents because we have already had our sins forgiven. But because we love him, We want to be just like. So when we see sin and error in our lives, it grieves us, but it grieves us to turn away from that sin and that error in our lives. That is why the believer repents. But why does the unbeliever repent? I think we see it in how Peter responds. The unbeliever, which every single one of us at one time in our lives were, the unbeliever repents so that they will not be condemned. If you are outside of the family of faith, then if you don't repent, you will be condemned. John 3, 17, for he who does not believe is condemned already. Repentance saves us. Regeneration saves us from the wrath of God and the condemnation of God. So that should give us some insight because Peter doesn't tell him repent so that you can grow in Christ. He says, repent so that you will not be condemned. He tells him to turn away so that he is not condemned. In other words, the believer doesn't repent so that their sins may be forgiven. But they carefully acknowledge that sin, confess that sin And turn away from that sin. It is not common enough in the life of people who claim to be Christians that they are repenting. What we have seen far too often in our day is excused after excuse, after excuse for the myriad sins that Christians find themselves in, not just find themselves in, but make a practice of that sin. If you have truly been regenerated, you should be an expert at repentance. So you want to say, well, how can we spot true repentance? Because you should know what it looks like. And if you don't know what real repentance is, then I may have some bad news for you. So he is told to repent and pray that if it is possible that the intent of his heart will be forgiven. Peter doesn't say you've been forgiven, brother. He says, so that the intent of your heart may. He says, I don't even know if it will be. If it's possible, let it be forgiven. This doesn't sound like a man who is a believer. Now, what's interesting here is that Peter is the same one who pronounces the rebuke on Ananias and Sapphira. And while there are similarities, there are great differences. The similarity is that They are both, they are all told to repent. The difference, Ananias and Sapphira didn't. When told to repent and confess the sin, they denied it and they lied and they were dead. Simon says to appear that he wants to repent. Now, we have to figure out If the opportunity takes to repent is legitimate or is he just pretending to repent like he pretended to be a magician? Number three, how to spot true repentance, how to spot true repentance? I know some people may look at this and think that there is no way possible. For us to ever know what true repentance looks like. And sure, in the lives of other people, we cannot be 100 percent convinced that somebody has actually repented. But as I just said, if we are Christians, we should know what real repentance looks like. If we are Christians, we should be able to legitimize when a person who has said that they have turned from a sin has actually turned from that sin. So in the scripture, we are given two types of repentance. There is real repentance and there is fake repentance. There is right repentance and there is wrong repentance. Now, what is right repentance? We see right repentance. We see it in the life of David in Psalm 51. We already talked about this in a sermon before. When he comes face to face with a holy God, he sees the wickedness of his own heart. And he says, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. And he sees for the first time the holiness of God. And he sees how in violation he was of the holiness of God. But it doesn't just come out in his words. It comes out in his life. See, let me tell you about wrong repentance. Wrong repentance makes a show of it. God, I'm so sorry, and I meant to do better, and I didn't didn't know God, and I love you, and you're so right, and I'm so wrong, and I'm so sinful, and you're so holy. It's a facade. Because the true response to the holiness of God is a life that is surrendered to the holiness of God. Says I have sinned against a holy God and the only way I can be right with you is if I eradicate the sin that's in my life. If I throw it away, I set it aside with no intention of ever picking it up again. That is repentance. If that has not dominated your life, then you have not repented. The person whose repentance is a a facade makes sure that they make a show of their guilt. They only change because they have consequences of their wrongdoing and they don't want to suffer the consequences. Pastor Tim Keller tells this story and it's a story about repentance. He tells this story. He says when he was a young pastor, he'd been pastoring a year. And he had a man and a wife who came to him. And the wife is going to divorce her husband. She says that her husband is rude. He is mean. He's nasty. He's crass. He's self-absorbed. He doesn't love her. She says she has given up on the marriage. And the only way the husband can get her agreed to not get a divorce is that he says, we'll go to Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller for counseling. And so they agree to go. And of course, when they arrive, he is so sorrowful and so shamed for his sin and so guilty of everything that she's saying because everything she said about him was true. And he was motivated because he knew that if he didn't change, that he would lose his wife. And so he changes. And Tim said he becomes a model citizen. Nicest man you ever met. Totally, totally different than who he ever was. And he said it lasted for month after month after month after month. And then he slowly, but surely, gradually turned back into the man that he had been the whole time. Why? Because now the consequences are gone. And so what appeared to be true repentance was not true repentance It was sorrow it was guilt it was shame but that is not repentance I'm gonna break some news to you it doesn't matter how shamed you may be of your sin it doesn't matter how guilty you may feel it doesn't matter how embarrassed it doesn't matter how much you cry how much snot comes out of your nose if it is not guilt and shame and embarrassment that leads to repentance, then it meant nothing. If we only change so that we do not lose our spouses, so that we do not lose our jobs, so that we do not lose our pulpits, so that we do not lose our 401k, so that we do not go to hell, then that's not true repentance. And we have not truly changed at all. Now, you think, well, there you go again, Brandon. Supposing stuff on the Bible. The Bible never said that the Bible said, be sorry for your sin. Second Corinthians 79. As it is, I rejoice. But why? Not because you were grieved. You don't care about your grief. Paul says, I don't rejoice because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. What does he mean by worldly grief? Anything that you grieved over, no matter how wrong you were, no matter how wrong you felt, no matter how sinful you felt, if that grief did not cause you to turn into the welcoming arms of Jesus Christ, you have yet to repent. Paul tells us here, this is what true repentance looks like. It is not just toiling and grieving over your sins, but it is doing so in a way that leads to real change. Not a simple laying it aside with it in the corner of your eye, always thinking about it, but it is eradicating that sin. So let's conclude. Is Simon really a believer who's. Repentant. What say you? Let's look at what he says. How about that? And he said, Simon answered. After being told to repent, pray for me to the Lord. That nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Wait a minute. He says, Pray for me so that I don't have to suffer the consequences that you have just described because those sound horrific. He doesn't say pray for me because I'm in error, because I'm wrong, because I see myself as wrong, because I need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He does not say that. He says what you just described is horrible. Pray for me so that I don't have to suffer that. Is that true repentance? Of course it is. Of course it is. I don't want what you, to ha- what you just said is going to happen. So out of fear, I'll be judged. Will you pray that it doesn't happen? It's not true repentance at all. It's not even close. So what do we learn here? This is what we learn. We learn that it is just as easy to profess the faith. It is even easy to walk with people who are in the faith. It is easy to feign repentance. But in all that, it's never legitimate. Now, it should be, honestly, the great fear of us all Lord, am I a counterfeit? Am I in love with Jesus Christ? Has my life been transformed by it? You say, well, I shouldn't walk around feeling that way. Well, the Bible tells us examine yourself. And the word is the the present imperative constantly. You are constantly examining, examining, examining yourself to see if you are really in the faith. Tells us to work out our salvation with reverence, with fear, and with trembling. We should all be concerned that we're Christians and not counterfeits. But this is the hope. This is the hope for all of us. If you have sorrow over your sins, and if that sorrow has led to real change and repentance in your life then guess what you're saved you are a Christian and there is nothing that God will do to renege on that promise you are redeemed and nothing can separate you from that love and nothing can take it away that is our hope Is that we are real let's pray father God we thank you for the word today God you have shown in us to us in the life of Simon how easy it is to to deceive ourselves you have shown us how easy it is to think that we are Christians when we are not you have shown us how easy it is to do the stuff and say the things and walk the walk but God, that does not make us a real Christian, God. What makes us real Christians is that we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us and that we have been transformed from the inside out into newness, that we've been regenerated, and that we are repenting, and that it is real, true, genuine, legitimate repentance that leads to salvation. God, so our prayer today is that if there is anybody in this room who has claimed to be a Christian, if there is anybody who is watching who has claimed to be a Christian, but they know that they are not in right standing, that their life is not dominated by repentance, God, no matter how they serve in this church or any church, God, No matter how long they've gone to church, Lord, if they do not have a real relationship with you, God, let this sermon be the conviction that they need to walk with you, God, to turn from their sins and pass from death to life. Lord, there are Christians who are in this room who have struggled with repentance, God, who have struggled with change. God, remind them today. That because we have the power of the Holy Spirit, you have given us everything that we need in order to change. And that we do not have to continue in sin. You already died for that. You have already forgiven us if we are Christians. And we, if we are truly saved, must walk in that calling. And while we would never be sinless here on earth, we should sin less. That is our prayer. And it is in the matchless name of Jesus Christ that we pray. And everybody said, Amen.